Welcome to the NC4 Podcast. We exist to know Christ and make Him known. Discover the power of a connected life by listening to this message from God's Word. This morning we're pursuing our third message in this series called the Masterclass. Jesus' Masterclass being the Sermon on the Mount, Masterclass for His disciples. So last week we asked the question as we focused on the eight Beatitudes, the question that we asked last week was, what does it mean to live a good life? What's a good life? And we contrasted some of the ways our culture defines living the good life to the way Jesus defines uh, living the good life. We looked at how Tony Bennett <laughs> uh, describes living the good life, how Billy Joel describes living, all the songs about living a good life. It's a great intro then to what we're going to extend that master class last week into uh, this morning. And this morning, what we're going to talk about is being a good person. I titled the message, Good Persons. I would have called it Goodfellas, but then I run into all the gender problems because I couldn't figure out whether a female gangster was called a good fella or not. So, you know, that was, uh, that was the reason for that. All right. I can't enumerate the number of times in 40 years of ministry that when I introduce someone in their need for Jesus or their need for forgiveness, uh, that they pushed back at me and said, this is what they said, but I'm a good person. Have you heard that? I'm a good person. Or if I introduced in hopefully an unthreatening or non-manipulative kind of way the idea of justice and heaven or hell, uh, if I introduced that, the response came back to me again, but I'm a good person. And I find it interesting because that's kind of a little bit of a mantra in the culture. I remember I was, I was talking to an opioid addict a couple of years ago in Philly, and I mean, this guy had real problems. And I was talking to him about Christ and his need for Christ and the addiction, and he said to me, I'm a good person. And I'm thinking, well, why does you being a good person even introduce the fact that you might not need Christ? Or what is it do you mean when you say you're a good person? What he essentially was saying is this, Look, I'm a good person, meaning I don't want to hurt anybody else, but I have this flaw. I thought, oh, that's, that's interesting. In a recent issue of Psychology Today, a clinical psychologist, as a, like as a matter of an experiment, walked into the salon of a psychic. Yeah? And the psychic said to him, well, what, what would you like to know about your life? And the psychologist said to the psychic, this is a true story, he says, am I a good person? And the, the psychic was kind of taken aback because he said, Nobody, nobody's ever asked me that question before. And so the, psych, the psychologist pushed and said, no, I want to know, am I a good person? You're supposed to have this surreal wisdom. And the psychic kind of defaulted and became a bit of a psychologist and said this. He said, well, since you're asking that question, then you're a good person. And the psychologist retorted to the psychic and said, but I feel like I'm a bad person who just does good things. Isn't that interesting? These are the kinds of interior questions that people, even Christians, walk around with in their souls and their minds every day. And, and, you know, Christians can say, I know I'm redeemed, but am I good? Why do I dislike myself? Why am I dissatisfied with myself? Is it because I'm a bad person? Or as Mary Poppins said, Bert, I hate being good, huh? 
most of the time when these questions pose themselves, there's a disconnect between how we behave and how we feel. So in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has some really powerful things to say about how we can live and ever know whether we're good people or not. And part of what Jesus had to say to his disciples who lived under this regiment of Old Testament law was like striking to them because it was so counterintuitive to everything they believed and the way that they were raised. And in a nutshell, this is what Jesus has to say. He says, being a good person can't be reduced to behaving correctly. And I say that again. Being a good person can't be reduced to merely behaving correctly. There, there are 613 commandments in the law of Moses covering uh, the correct mode of, of behavior for every facet of human behavior and every facet of life. And then there were, three bo- there were other books that interpreted those laws into more laws that you had to keep. The scribes and the Pharisees, the two uh, dominant religious sects of the day, the scribes and the Pharisees at the time of Jesus attempted to live up to all those multiple laws. See, fundamentalistic people love correctness. Have you noticed that? I mean, I'm not just talking about religion. There's a fundamentalistic side of life. People disposed to that love to have everything correct. And the problem was, and the problem still is, life can't be reduced to correct behaviors, yeah? There could never be enough laws, yeah, to cover everything. You always fall short, which is the reason that Paul wrote the book of Romans and said, you know, all of us have fallen short of the law. All of us are sinners. Or as there's a beat poet by the name of Richard Farina, who I love, and he says, one of the interesting things is just when you think, he wasn't a Christian, he was an agnostic, he said, just when you think you are good, and just when you get satisfied with yourself, you discover there's a worm in the Hershey bar. (laughs) There's always something eating away at my sense of self-satisfaction. So if, if this is like, if this is how it is, then why is there law? How can you ever know you're a good person? I want to turn to the Sermon on the Mount, our master class, and begin reading from Matthew chapter 5 and verse 17. I'll read one verse and then I'll unpack that and then we'll go to the rest of it. So if you go to Matthew chapter 5, we're kind of picking up where we left off last week. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples. And this astonishing thing is what he has to say to them. Now remember, the big accusation against Jesus that was emanating from the scribes and the Pharisees was that he was disobeying the law because he healed on the Sabbath and he did these other kinds of things that seemed to uh, circumvent the law, that he was treating the law of Moses cheaply. Okay? So Jesus says to his disciples and to the crowds, but his disciples are at his feet. He says, do not think that I have, verse 17, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets which is a euphemism for the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Now, the Greek word for abolish here means to render something no longer valid, to render null, to render it void. And it's important that Jesus 
does not say that he's come to obey or keep the law. He says, I've come to fulfill the law. And the word to fulfill is really interesting because it it means to bring into being that which the law points to. It's the same word that's used to describe fulfilling a prophecy. So I don't think most Christians kind of pick up on this dimension. So Jesus is saying that the law and the prophets were prophetic in and of themselves. And they pointed to something and or someone that would fulfill them. So, for example, this is why he states in Matthew eleven thirteen. he says, all the law and the prophets prophesied. Did you ever notice that? All the law and the prophets themselves prophesied until John the Baptist. In essence, Jesus is saying that there has to be something underlying the performance, doing all this good, being do-gooders, all the work and the performance and the requirements of the Mosaic law. There has to be something underlying that It's waiting to be revealed, and I am he, right? So the rest of the Sermon on the Mount is the unfolding of that truth. The rest of the master class is the unfolding of that truth. Uh, Verse uh, 18, he says, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until it is accomplished. There's a, there's a time frame. The word means until it's revealed, until it's unfolded. Verse 19, therefore whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And then Jesus says something that's kind of scorching to the crowd, to his disciples, You know, the context of this is phenomenal because he says something that just must have blown them away. He says, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, these are the guys who are trying to dot every I and cross every T regarding what it is to be correct about human behavior, about sin, and those kinds of things. He says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you're never going to enter the kingdom of heaven. I mean, it's turning the world upside down. And the scribes and Pharisees worked their whole lives to correctly obey every single law. And they saw themselves, this is what's really the fascinating things, they saw themselves as being good. They all said, I am a good person. Are, are you there? It was really interesting stuff. So, so Jesus is the fulfiller of the law and the prophets, which all pointed toward him. And this is what, this is what Jesus displays that the religious people just could not get a hold of, just couldn't grasp it, you know? And that's this, true goodness is a matter of heart. And Jesus had said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. We talked about that last week. I want to talk about perceiving God in just a minute. But, but if goodness is a matter of heart, how do you do that? Because the psalmist says, right, you know, who can know their own heart? It's deceitfully wicked. So, you know, we're, we're posed with this kind of problem. And more than that, you know, what does it mean to actually be good? Are we actually called to be good? How many people here are good? <laughs> I got y'all. Well, Elijah's halfway there. He's like, 
You know, that's the most common answer there in life. All right. So you get it. Only God is good, that kind of thing. So, because there's this curious episode recording in both, recorded in both Mark and Luke's gospel where a man comes up to Jesus and says, good teacher, a little flattery there, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus, Jesus answers and said, why do you call me good? Only, no, no one is good. No one is good. Jesus said that, except God alone. Wow, well, what do you do with that? Now, Jesus could have said, well, actually, I'm God, so I am good. <laughs> but he, he was trying to get at flattery and trying to get at, you know, he was trying to teach an object lesson here. Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Wow, what do you do with that? Well, well I'm going to give us all a clue, and at first, you're going to think, this is even worse, huh? You know? Because here's a principle in the Old Testament, New Testament, and it's in the Sermon on the Mount as well. And this is it. Biblically, the only way to be good is to be perfect. Huh? So how many of you here are perfect? Wow. Nobody? Okay, I'm raising my hand. All right. Because I'm going to unpack this. <laughs> See, the only way to be good is to be perfect. But what does that mean? In the book of Genesis, chapter 17, God appears to Abraham and says something to him that just is nuts. I mean, it just seems impossible. And so it says that when God, when, I'm sorry, when Abraham was 90 years old and 90 and 9, 99 years old, this guy's walked 99 years, all right? And the Lord appeared to Abram and said unto him, I am the almighty God, walk before me. And then he says, and be thou perfect. Whoa, man. You know, if that was just this isolated case in Genesis 17, I'd say, ooh, I'm going to, you know, there must have been a misunderstanding. We can go back to Hebrew and Greek and all that kind of stuff and get out of this trap, right? But, again, in the Sermon on the Mount itself, just a few verses following where we're at right now, Jesus reiterates to his disciples what God had said already to Abraham. Jesus says, therefore, you are to be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect perfect. So how many of us, now Jesus said we got to do that, right? I would think that if Jesus said we got to do that, it's doable. Huh? So how many here are perfect? Well, we don't know because, ah, oh, I got two more hands, three, four, five, six. Oh my gosh. Revelations flooding the room. <laughs> Again, James, Jesus' disciple is at his feet right now, but he writes to the church later. James says, he says, let endurance have its perfect results so that you can be perfect. And then he adds something that gives us a clue to where all this is going. He says, perfect and complete. All right. So in an explicit way, the scripture never commands us to be good boys and girls. All right. You know, teachers always say, be good boys and girls. Well, the scripture doesn't say that, but it does say that there's some kind of perfection that God himself has that we can plug into. Huh? How does that work? Well, one of the ways to understand it is to realize that to be perfect does not mean to behave correctly all the time. Isn't that interesting? Huh? That's, why, that's why Mary Poppins says to Bert, I hate being good. <laughs> you know? uh, so the word perfect here, in both Hebrew and Greek, means to be complete. It means to be whole. It means to be uh, upright. Just as the same clothing that I wore when I was six doesn't fit me anymore, 
There is clothing that fits me now, and I'm complete in that clothing, all right? So when I was six, those clothes don't fit me now when I'm 72. The same level of carrying Christ's image when I was a new believer, watch this, doesn't fit me now. And I want to know that because I want to know that I'm becoming and becoming and becoming complete in his image. Huh? And when I know that, there's a perfection attached to it. In other words, I'm perfectly who I'm supposed to be right now in my life. And most days I feel that way. Do I, does that mean that, I, that I'm not a sinner? No. Does it mean that I don't you know, get on people's nerves sometimes? No, my wife will testify to that. She's right here at my right hand. Does that mean that I'm exhibiting constant moral perfection, that I'm as beautiful every day as I was yesterday and all those? It has nothing to do with that. It has to do with the standard that God raises for me individually as a Christian as I grow and develop into his image. Is that making some kind of sense? Be ye complete. So the word perfect here means to be whole, means to be upright. To be perfect means to be completely who I'm supposed to be at any given time in my walk with God. When I was a new Christian, there were expectations of me in God. They're not the same expectations today. It's kind of like when I say, that jacket finally fits me perfectly. It's that kind of thing. So my walk and your walk is all about growth in Christ. But here's the thing. God doesn't want us to be satisfied in being the same for the rest of our lives. Huh? And, and my, my walk and your walk shouldn't be the same walk. So to be good is to live up. This is the principle here. To be good is to live up to God's standard of completeness at any given time in my walk. Now, fundamentalistic religion seeks a perfection that isn't perfect. It's really perfectionism. I want to say that again. Fundamentalistic religion seeks a perfection which isn't perfect. It's really perfectionism. I mean, you've got to do this right, you've got to do that right, you've got to... And so perfectionistic people live in a perpetual state of dissatisfaction with themselves. I find that so many believers are less satisfied with themselves than God is. Then in the world, most unbelievers are much more satisfied with themselves than God is. (laughs) What a state of affairs. There is a story from the life of St. Francis of Assisi that I love. It's a true story. One of his disciples, one of the monks, a member of the Brotherhood, one of his disciples finds himself continually staring at an attractive woman who's scantily clothed, right? He's suddenly aware that St. Francis is watching this behavior, right? Is watching him and has been watching him for some time and catching this act. So when he realizes this, he drops to his knees and he begins to cry and he begs for forgiveness. And St. Francis pulls him up off his knees and says, don't be so hard on yourself. You're not called to be celibate. It's a gift. Huh? It's a gift. He says, I've known it for a while, so stop trying to be something that you're not called to be. And the young man left the order and married, which is perfectly okay because that was the standard that God, he he became perfectly married. Are you there? All right. So I'm saying all of this because here are some hints for us to measure whether we're good in the sense of being 
like this provisionally perfect. Here's some hints. First hint is this. To be good is to live in conformity to my created purpose. Huh? I want to be all that I'm called to be and to live in that grace because there's grace for that. It's doable. It's eminently doable or Jesus wouldn't say to do it. And when you do it, you're getting the grace from God. Who is, you're tapping into his perfection. Now, we're always given the grace to act morally. I just want to get that out of the way. We're always given the grace to act morally. The scripture says that, that there is no temptation, but that God will make a way to escape, that you might be able to escape from uh, temptation on the day of temptation. That's uh, 1 Corinthians 13. We're not talking about moral. We're talking about something else. We're not always given the grace to be some things in life that we try to be. Huh? And it gets us in trouble. If my goal is to be an opera singer in church, then I'm not going to do well. <laughs> I'm not going to be very satisfied. I was talking to a pastor this week from Ireland. So he goes into his church, and there's somebody singing. Okay, The problem is she is absolutely tone deaf. So she's blaring away into the microphone, and of course that off note, which is never on, just you know wrecks worship. And so... The guy who's the worship leader, who's fairly well-known, he's a good guy, just can't do confrontation, right? So, so the pastor goes to the worship leader and says, you know, she's a sweetheart, but she ain't got the chops. <laughs> she's not doing what she's called to be doing. And her expectations, she's dissatisfied with herself because she intrinsically knows that she can't do what she's called to do. She's not been gifted to do that thing. Are you there? Well, you know, we do all these gifting conferences and stuff. Come and discover your gift. And usually people are predisposed to a gift that they want to have, not necessarily a gift that they do have, you know. I want to have a conference where you find out what you're not gifted for. Anyway, so... <laughs> Look, when I, was, when I was a kid coming into ministry, if you had a fairly good guitar and you knew three chords, you could plant the church. Yeah. It ain't like that anymore. Are you there? You know? And so, I mean, you haven't seen me up leading worship or even on a worship team in most of your tenure here at NC4 if you're online. And there's a reason for that. If I look at Tom Horn or, or Jake here or uh, Johnny Kilman or, or any of these guys, what they do is instinctively better than I can think. Are, are you there? Even though I'll get out the guitar sometime and you know, scare the squirrels or something. But, but <laughs> or if I'm really desperate, I'll bring, up, bring out the accordion and then ask Bob to come down with his bagpipes and no egg is hatched within three miles of my house for years. So, all right. We need to understand and live in conformity to what we're called to, right? Oh, by the way, person on the worship team, worship leader went to her and said, Pastor says you have to come off the worship team. <laughs> he threw him under the bus. <laughs> Pastor said, he threw me under the bus. The next Sunday, she comes into church weeping, and her husband behind her with smoke coming out of his ears. And he just had to say, honey, you're not gifted to do this. That's why you're dissatisfied with what you're doing. You know, It's that kind of thing. So one of the indications then, so that's a hint, Am I living in conformity to my created purpose? And, you know, morally, we've got the grace for that. I'm not talking about that. But I'm talking about all those other areas of life. To be good is to enjoy 
the fruit then of the Holy Spirit in my life. It's a good thing to be convicted uh, of sin by the Holy Spirit. That's, we talk about that all the time. But we must also be aware that the devil's business is peddling guilt, shame, but this is a big one, self-dissatisfaction, right? He's the accuser of us. It's his job. He breeds self-dissatisfaction. And we talked about last week, remember we talked about doing a values inventory because what we value dictates who we become. Remember we talked about that in your homework this week was to be praying, thinking, talking to your spouse or friends about what you value in life and what it's causing us to become. It's that kind of thing. But here's an exercise we can perform as we're assessing what we value. The Galatian church was adamant about work, 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 work. They were, they were do-gooders. They were Pharisaic, and, and they were like, like the Sadducees and the scribes, and it was their way of being good, and they could never get there. They were fundamentalistic. They were legalists. Paul says to them in Galatians 5.22, actually, actually in, in Galatians 1, Paul says, who has bewitched you? I mean, I, I came talking about how much grace there is to live your life. Man, I was, grace, grace, grace. Who has bewitched you, Galatians? And so Paul says to them in chapter 5, he says, the fruit of the Spirit is love. Fruit of the Spirit is joy. It, it's, it's peace. It's patience. Kindness. You know, self-control. The fruit of the Spirit is like that. Against such things, Paul said, there's no law. Law won't get you here. Yeah? So, you go to Galatians 5.22 and do an assessment and say, well, wait a second. What, you know, why do I have a hard time loving? Why do I have a hard time acting out love but also feeling affection for others? Is it because I'm afraid of... Is one of my values a self-protective fear? Are you following me in this? Or why is it that I find self-control very difficult? What, what's working in me? What am I valuing that's militating against self-control? Or what is it that destroys my peace? Like, and am I, am I an Eagles fan? Or, you know, <laughs> what's doing that? Or Giants? Anyway, so <laughs> a great exercise would be to make an inventory of what dimension of the fruit of spirit you are not experiencing, and then ask God to help you understand what value you have to take on board, especially from the master class here, that stops the impediment through your experiencing this fruit of the Spirit. We could, we could spend a whole morning on this, but you know what? I, I was thinking, do I introduce this because there's a lot we could talk about here? But I thought I'm going to because you guys are Christians. You know, this is not rocket science. You can take this to God. I can take it to God and draw some conclusions on it, right? You can add to your value inventory that you took last week. Hopefully you, you thought about this during the week. You can ask some questions on that and add the fruit of the Spirit to it. Okay, the last, most important way in which you can know that you're a good person and you can't opt out of this one. Good persons can only find their approval in intimate relationship with God. Otherwise, it's just fluff and window dressing. Huh? You have to personally hear Jesus approve you. Huh? That doesn't come apart from prayer. It doesn't come apart from worship. It doesn't come apart from any kind of an active relationship with God. You know, in the same Sermon on the Mount, 
in chapter 7, Jesus says something that's really startling. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. I mean, that, he's not talking about even being in the kingdom of heaven. He's saying, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Okay, well, what's that look like? Well, he says, on that day, he's talking about judgment day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? And didn't we do many mighty works? The word there for works is miracles. We were miracle workers in your name. And Jesus says, and I will declare to them, I never knew you. Wow, that is, I find that a very distracting piece of scripture. Because he doesn't say, you didn't know me. He said, I never knew you. We didn't have a relationship whereby you knew me and I knew you. I remember a number of years ago, a very prominent uh, minister who I knew had a fall from grace, and, and it was kind of tragic. Anyway, so, you know, he was ousted from his congregation, and he was kind of lost, and when that happens, nobody wants to be your buddy anymore, and all that kind of stuff. This was about 20, 20 years ago. One of the prophetic people, an international kind of prophetic person, came to him, and, and he didn't know him at all. But God kind of gave him an assignment to go to this guy. And the prophet came to him and said, the Lord told me to come to you to say this, that you are not going to be known of men heretofore in your life, but I'm going to bless you, God said. And I'm going to bless you especially. From this point forward, you will be known of me. How's that? See, there's a trade-off. Celebrity Christianity is not a good thing you got to catch that. It just isn't. All right. There is no religiosity, no celebrity, no posturing that is a substitute for knowing Jesus. But more than this, because you guys know Jesus, being known of Jesus by him. That only happens with intimate relationship. That's why you're here this morning. Just as each of us uh, being approved by our own earthly fathers contributes to our emotional well-being, our being known by Jesus is paramount for our emotional well-being. You can't get it anywhere else. But that's kind of good, isn't it? Because I don't want to get it anywhere else. All right. Um, I want to just take a, a moment here. And it may be that you're either watching online or, or, or maybe you're here this morning. And... and uh, you've never taken the step where you told Jesus you want to know him. And you've never taken the step where you told Jesus, I want to be known by you, of you. I want to apply what you did in dying for me and what you did in resurrecting so that I would have eternal life. I, I want to apply that to my life. So I'm going to ask everybody here to just bow their heads and if you're at home, you can do the same. And we'll pray this prayer. And it could be it'll change your life. And we've been having... People whose lives have been changing uh, every week, we see, almost every week, we see someone uh, pray this prayer, maybe not for the first time, but for the first time with effect. So you can repeat these words after me. And if, if these words have already had effect in your life, you can remind yourself that this is where you stand with Christ. Or you can pray them thinking of someone 
who you would like to see pray them as well. How's that? So pray after me, if you would. Lord Jesus Christ, I love you, and I'm sorry for the things I've done wrong. I ask you, forgive me, Lord. I want to turn from anything I know is wrong. Give me the grace to do that. Thank you that you died for me so that I could be forgiven and set free. Thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you for the gift of your spirit. And I receive that gift. Come into my life, Jesus. Be with me forever so that I can be with you forever. Amen. If you prayed that for the first time, please let someone know. Or maybe you prayed it before, but it never had its effect. It's something you feel, I believe there's, I am, I'm, I'm a feeling in the spirit that there's, there's some one, there's a couple people either online or here that particular prayer, this is the first time that you feel like it's had effect. That's faith rising up within you. If you could let me know or let uh, Pastor Mike Dunstan, our online pastor, let him know. It's really important that we, we get in touch with you and, you know, we get you started on, on this, uh, putting on these new clothes, yeah? Yeah. Welcome little ones. Amen. All right. So, the fruit of the Holy Spirit is a great inventory. I mean, there are other values that you want to take on board. But if you, if, if, if you and I can isolate uh, the behaviors, the values that we, we harbor that preclude us experiencing the fruit of the Holy Spirit in Galatians 5.22, that would be really valuable. And that's our homework going into this coming week. So all you uh, perfect ones out there, all you good ones out there, uh, just be satisfied in the perfection of our Lord Jesus Christ because it's a commandment. Amen and amen and amen. Thank you for listening to the NC4 Podcast. For more info, visit our website at nc4.org. We believe in the power of a connected life. If you prayed to give your life to Jesus today, we'd love to help you walk it out together. Just text the word Jesus to 610-816-6062.